Thank you, Randy. Good morning. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Everybody else, today we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you want to turn there, that would be great. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one under the chair in front of you. And in those Bibles, we are on page 278. Page 278. Uh, If you're new with us today, welcome. Glad that you're here. We're in uh, a series of messages just called the four G's. We're looking at four attributes of God that each begin with the letter G, helping us to remember them. So far, we have said that God is great, so we don't have to be in control, and God is glorious, so we don't have to fear people. So we've covered great and glorious. Today we're going to look at good. I think she said ba ba ba, which is a little weird, but to each their own. Um, God, as we've said so far, is um, without equal. He is in a a class all by himself. He is not somehow just like us, but slightly better. God is supreme over all. He has power to do everything he wants to do, and his glory fills the earth. It's great news, isn't it? For created, sinful, finite human beings, though, the, the greatness and glory of God are amazing truths, but they're potentially devastating as well. Because we are not great, and we are not uh, glorious. And so we owe Him our worship, but we have given Him disdain and indifference. All of us, certainly in different ways, but we share that. Today we'll reach the enormously good news that not only is God great, not only is God glorious, but He's also good. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So God Himself is good, intrinsically good, and all of God's actions are good. So just imagine for a moment if what we had said in this series so far were true, that there is a God of complete power, but imagine He wasn't good. What would life be like? We would not have life. God's complete moral perfection, His power, His beauty, His splendor would crush us because we're not intrinsically holy and good like He is. But His goodness shines through in His benevolent kindness towards us. And that's what I have the joy of sharing with you today. In the mid-1800s, a guy named Stephen Charnock wrote what in many ways is still considered to be the, the classic book on God's existence and His attributes. 
And in this book, he spends 145 pages on the goodness of God. Can you imagine having that much to say about the goodness of God? Let me read you just one quote from it. He says, God only is infinitely good, a boundless goodness that knows no limits, a goodness as infinite as his essence, not only good, but best, not only good, but goodness itself, the supreme inconceivable goodness. All things else are but little particles of God, small sparkles that Small, small sparks from this immense flame. I was trying to think how sparkles fits in. So it's having trouble. Small sparkles from his immense flame, sips of goodness to this fountain. Nothing that is good by his influence can equal him who alone is good by himself. God's goodness, in other words, is revealed both in, in who he is and in what he has done. Deep in our hearts, it's essential to daily life to be absolutely convinced of God's goodness. So many of our struggles, so many of our falling to temptation, so many of our doubts directly arise out of a lack of certainty that God's good. So my prayer today for you and for me is that we would become all the more persuaded that what Scripture says about God's goodness is true. So today we've picked a text that shows God's goodness in the context of sin. And hopefully that will persuade us that even when we sin, God is still good. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 9. And to be uh, frank, Nehemiah 9 seems remarkably boring at first glance. It's long, and we're going to read the entire thing. What good is a historical survey? None of us came this morning probably hoping for an overview of Israel's past. But friends, if you doubt if God's good, then this passage objectively shows from history that God is good. Nehemiah could be called a great panoramic of the goodness of God. So that's why we're there. Uh, if you're new to the Bible or not yet a Christian, it's important before we read Nehemiah 9 for you to grasp what we're about to read. So just a couple of comments. Christianity is different from many other religions. Christianity is a historical religion. It's rooted in history Things that happened, actual events with actual people, people just like you and me. They might have lived in different times and different circumstances, but had the same kinds of hearts and fears and doubts that we do. So Christians then, we, we don't look inward for spiritual meaning, as though we need some new mystical experience to help us feel good. But we also... Don't look upward to some mere unnamed higher power. Instead, we look outward onto the pages of the Bible because we believe that the Scriptures are the authoritative, trustworthy record of what God has done in actual time space. 
right? So, in other words, Nehemiah was a real person who led the Israelites to construct a real wall around a real city called Jerusalem. And we'll meet the people of God in a time of hardship in which no doubt some were struggling to believe that God is good. Nehemiah 9 recounts God's great acts for his people from Genesis all the way through this point in the biblical story. So if you're still considering the claims of Christ, we would want to say to you, understand that what's presented to you isn't myth or legend, but history, what God has actually done. God revealing his goodness. And friend, if you'll submit yourself to him, you'll find that God is still revealing his goodness. Now, in in Nehemiah, we have God rescuing an exiled people, bringing them back into Israel, constructing a wall around the city for protection, and then renewing the basis of their relationship. In the language of the Bible, that's called a covenant, that God made a promise to the people, and they made a promise to him. And Nehemiah 9 is the renewal of that covenant, if you will. So as we consider God's goodness today, let's find that God is good so we don't have to look elsewhere. We'll start in verse 3. Just read that one verse, make a couple comments, then we'll read a whole bunch of verses. So Nehemiah 3, 9. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. This was a six-hour church service. So I thought we'd try that today. (laughs) This great moment of spiritual renewal for the people of God wasn't marked by laser lights and videos, smoke and mirrors. It was quite simply the reading of God's Word, the confession of sin, and prayer. That was it. This this is what God's people do when they get together. It's always been what God's people do when they get together. They open the Word. God speaks through His Word. God convicts us of our sin. We pray. And the result is renewal in Him. That's enormously encouraging that we don't have to drum up something crazy. We don't have to somehow perform better than last week. We can simply do what God's people do because it's in the Word of God that we meet the person of God and experience the power of God. So this is what the Israelites did. A church, these things have always marked the people of God. May they define us. May they mark us. Now, in the middle of this spiritual recommitment, if you will, the spiritual leaders of the day stand and give an extended prayer. And I agree with Dre. Randy, your prayer was wonderful today. Let's look and see what they prayed to God on this very important day. It starts in verse 6. They say, you are the Lord, you alone. 
You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that's in them. You preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Gargantuanite, and the Termites. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the afflictions of the fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. You made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from the heavens and gave them right rules and right laws and good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded to them the commandments and statutes and the law of Moses, your servant. This is the, the covenant when it was originally formed, the Mosaic covenant, it's called. That's just fancy lingo for God acted for his people. He committed himself to them and they committed themselves, themselves to him. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go and possess the land that you'd swore to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and didn't obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you'd performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they'd made themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in a way that did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them the way that they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, did not withhold manna from their mouths and give them water for their first thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Siphon and king of Hezbon and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that they had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them their land. 
with their kings and the people of their land that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities and rich land and took possessions of full houses of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Some of us are like, I now have a life verse. <laughs> 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn their back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. Now we're in the, t- the time of the prophets. And in the time of their sufferings, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. You abandoned them into the hands of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he will live by them. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end of them nor forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You notice there's not a single request yet? That's a lot of praying without asking for anything. It's a recounting of what God has done. Now we come to the request. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that's come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you've been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amidst your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies, over our livestock, as they please, and we are in great distress. 
Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What a chapter. I made a list of the things this chapter says about God. When, when you spend time in the Scriptures, I would encourage you to do that. Sometimes just stop and say, what is everything about God I learned from this one chapter? Listen to this. This chapter tells us that God's the creator, that He's the sustainer, that He's the elector, that He's the covenant maker, the promise keeper, righteous, rescuer, guider, lawgiver, pro- provider, Forgiver, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, lover, faithful, present, teacher, giver, multiplier, patient, prophet, sender, great, mighty, awesome. And all of that summed up in a word? Good. This is our God. 26 things this one chapter says about God. This is the perfect character and the gracious work of God. So in our remaining few minutes, just a few comments from this wonderful chapter. One of the things this chapter shows us is that God's promises, His good promises, are grounded in His character, not ours. The reason we can count on God is that God is not dependent upon us to fulfill what He says He will do. His character is steadfast and perfect What God says He will do, He will do. The last part of verse 8 says, You have kept your promises, for you're righteous. That's really great news. God's goodness is seen especially in the gracious promises He makes for His people. And all of these promises are rooted not in our own ideas, in our own faithfulness, in our own character, but in God's. That should make you want to stand on your chair and holler. Because at the core, the basis for our relationship with God is God and His ability to fulfill what He has said He will do. This is the best news there could possibly be. Literally everything else in your life is dependent upon what you do. Everything. It started when you smiled and your mama cheered for you. And then when you started going to school and you drew a little picture, you got a star, right? So how many adults in the room are still looking for stars every day based on what we do? And yet God says, I'm good. I've acted on your behalf. Your future in me is secure. I love you. You don't need to earn little stars. I've given you my son. Maybe we could say that God is faithful to his promises, especially when we are unfaithful to ours. This chapter shows us that. Verses 9 through 15 record the great rescue of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. 
They were powerless against the great nation. They were enslaved. But God intervened. God showed himself greater than Pharaoh and greater than all the gods of Egypt. If you don't know that story, read the book of Exodus. It's a tremendous story. What does that have to do with us today? Well, everything. If you track through the trajectory of the biblical story, what you find is that God's deliverance of Egypt, God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt was a pre-enactment of our rescue out of sin. So they killed a Passover lamb, but Jesus became the true and better Passover lamb. And so embedded within history, God was foretelling, even foreshowing what he would do in Christ. So we look not back merely at a people coming out of Egypt, but at ourselves coming out of the snatches, the snare of hell itself because of Christ. What a good God we have. Ever since Passover, God's people gathered annually to remember God's deliverance. And in the church today, we gather to remember our deliverance through Christ. So today we'll have the joy of taking the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is, in a very real sense, our act of covenant renewal. Our act together of coming and saying, God, we recognize what you've done for us in Christ and we stand united. We want to live with him and with you and with each other for his glory. So I have the privilege of doing that today. But despite God's merciful deliverance, verses 16 to 20 show us that many were unfaithful. That even in the context of living among the good gifts of God, they went their own way. But even while they were going their own way, God continued to provide. This moment in the chapter where people are out in Israel and Moses is gone and they build a golden calf and say about that calf what? Did you catch it? You are the one that rescued us. It's like the very pinnacle of offense to God. And yet, God continued to provide because he's good. One of the great temptations we face is to take God's goodness for granted. It's to, to start enjoying the good gifts of God and letting those gifts become little idols instead of those good gifts rounding out our hearts upward towards God in praise to him. So may this chapter remind us that God doesn't owe us anything. Israel forgot that. They felt entitled. They lost their awe of God. They lost their shock that a holy God would be kind and good to them. May it not be for us. 
May, may we learn from their experience that we must continually cultivate repentance and prayer, Bible reading. Verses 26 to 30 show us so clearly that God is faithful to His promises even when we are unfaithful to ours. There's this cycle in that section where Israel would sin and be warned and they would keep sinning, be disciplined by God. Eventually they would repent and return to the land, begin to enjoy good things from God again, and then the cycle would start over. Sin, discipline, repent, return. Sin, discipline, repent, return. Sin, discipline, repent, return. That's the Old Testament. It's also you. And it's also me. But where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Friends, God's good. God keeps His promises. He has promised to create a diverse people for Himself, to know and enjoy Him forever. A people out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Gathered together under His name for His glory, rescued by Him, placed into His family. These are the great promises of God. And look around you. God is fulfilling these promises. Even now we have a team of eight from Church on Mill on a plane headed to Thailand where less than 10% of people know about Christ. Why are they going? They're going because God is building a people for Himself from every nation. God is faithful to His promises. Another great important truth we see in this text is that our confidence of God's ongoing care is His objective work in the past. Verses 32 to 36, where they finally make a request. Show us that our confidence that God will continue to act towards us in accordance to His goodness is not our self-effort, but God's prior actions. Isn't that wonderful? How do we know that God will keep His promised word? How do we know when life is hard? In particular, perhaps, when we don't feel God's presence. When our prayers seem to hit the ceiling and bounce back down. When we suffer because we obey. When we open the Word, but it seems to be blank pages. How can we know that God will remain faithful. Friends, it's not by begging Him to do something new, but by remembering what He's already done. Because God is faithful to His own. 
He's faithful to himself. He doesn't change. What he has said he will do, he will do. Historical demonstration of the goodness of God. That is a long name for the Bible. I want to make sure we leave time to take the Lord's Supper together. But quickly, a couple points of application. Let me speak first to the Christians in the room. Would you think with me about two things? Number one, God is good and will withhold no good thing from us to sanctify us. So everything in our lives, we ought to see through the filter that God has promised to make me like Christ. And God is sovereign. And so literally everything that ever happens to me has been handcrafted by a good God for the good of making me like Christ. Some of those things I'm going to really love. Some of those things I'm going to struggle to embrace. But God is good. And God will only allow to come upon you what He will use to make you like Jesus. God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere. The reason we say yes to temptation is because we believe what that sin will bring is better than what God has provided. The essence of sin is disbelieving what God has said He will do. So if you want to get over some particular sin you keep struggling with, quit looking at the sin and look to God. Look at how good He is. And aim to look and gaze and cling to Him. And you'll find that that temptation becomes less and less and less. God is good. You don't have to look anywhere else. And second, the news of God's goodness is worth our joyful sacrifice. Church, ultimately, we're not here for ourselves. God has placed us in the middle of a city and a valley full of people who have yet to hear the good news. And so we are not here for ourselves. We're here to share God's goodness. So think about that in the context of one of the handouts you were given this morning, a sheet that says two gatherings on it. This fall, we're going to begin together worshiping in, in two gatherings because we're full. This will require sacrifice from all of us. This will mean people who are not engaged in an area of ministry need to pick one up. This will mean that those of us who are not faithfully giving need to start doing so. It'll mean things will feel different around here. You won't sit next to the same person probably you're sitting next to now. Those of you who are married, that's still okay. <laughs> but it'll mean change, and it's a big change. And so we're asking everybody to consider, in light of God's goodness, 
Would you look not primarily to your own needs and your own schedule, but to us aiming together to reach more people so more people can hear about the goodness of God? And that's just but one tiny little thing. There are endless ways in which the Lord can work through you and through us to sacrifice so that His goodness can be known. Now, to those of you briefly here who are undecided about Jesus, know that God's better than you ever dreamed. And you are worse than you ever imagined. And so, the need to turn from your sin and turn to Christ is far more pressing than I can communicate to you. You will know God as your judge. As the one who will condemn you. Or you will know God as your Savior. There are only two options. And what causes the change is not how good or how bad you've been. It's whether or not when the Father looks at you, He sees you or He sees His Son. And so, may Jesus open the door of your life into relationship with God. If you want to hear more about that, we'd love to visit with you, perhaps during the Lord's Supper or after the gathering. Or maybe you're at the place of believing Jesus came, died, and rose again, and He's alive and well. And if you'll turn from your sin and confess Him as Lord, then you can enjoy the table with us today. May we all follow the psalmist counsel as we take the Lord's Supper together. He says in Psalm 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The whole gospel is nothing but one entire mirror of divine goodness. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. Would you stand with me and let's pray? just a moment, we will sing together and we'll invite you to come to one of these stations in the front. There's two here or there's one at the back of the coffee bar and one to my right in the back. If you're a follower of Christ and a member of a church, we would invite you to seek, is there any sin that you need to confess to Christ? And are you at a point of harmony with brothers and sisters? And then why don't you just invite somebody around you? Would you go with me? Take that bread and cup and just as we're singing together, say a prayer and then observe the Lord's Supper as we commit covenant renewal, remembering God's goodness to us in Christ. So let me pray and then I'd invite you to come. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in history, that you've recorded it for us and we as your people come to sit under your good word. For you are a good God. And you do good. 
We thank you for ultimately the very best thing you did was sending Christ to die in our place, rise in our place. We praise you that for our wickedness, we have been given Christ's perfection. And Father, may we see today, perhaps afresh and anew, both the severity of our sin and the immensity of your goodness. We pray as we renew this covenant with you that we would experience more than bread and juice, but hearts and minds infused by the grace and goodness and glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come as you wish. sing with us. I will not boast. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. 
gain from his reward. I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Amen. Please be seated. It's been a great morning, hasn't it? It's great to worship with you and to uh, share the Lord's Supper together. If the ushers could come forward and take up the offering, the guest information card with a prayer request, please drop that in the offering plate, and then members certainly have the, the joy and privilege of providing for the financial needs uh, with offerings and tithes. So please put that in the offering plate as well. have uh, an announcement to make uh, real briefly here. A couple of things, actually. Uh, Chuck mentioned the, the gr group that's going to Thailand on mission trips, so be in prayer for them. We are privileged to be able to have several partners around the world that we, we uh, support through prayer and through giving. And uh, Phil Hoshiwara, is, it's his hope, he's our current, one of our current residents, is his hope to be able to go and, and work in Thailand as a pastor. So he and Eric Naylor have taken a team over there. As Chuck mentioned, they left this morning. They're actually uh, in the air, uh, leaving LAX uh, just a few minutes ago and on their way to Thailand. So be in prayer for them. They'll be gone for about two weeks. That would be, I hope I'm, I can get all the names right. Correct me if I, if I don't. Katera Bartels, Ariel Smith, Lindsey German, Gracie Turner, uh, Eric Naylor, Phil Hoshiwara, Dylan Baruman, and Tyler Lyons, all uh, on this trip. So uh, most of those are college students, so be in prayer for them as they go and minister in Thailand and care for the needs there. So uh, be in prayer for them. And also, one other thing, uh, Chuck mentioned the uh, little flyer that you should have gotten on your way in. Uh, we've been announcing this for the past couple of weeks. If you haven't been here, this may be new, new to you. If you haven't been here in the past couple of weeks, our move to two gatherings, we'll do that in 12 weeks. 12 weeks from today, we'll be adding a second gathering. So please be in prayer for that. If you haven't heard about that, or if you'd like updates, there is a way to get on our news blog on our website. You can sign up for that and you get a, a weekly email, one email a week that gives just some updates on what's going on in the life of our church, some updates about this as well. So a lot of great things happening in our church family. Please continue to pray for those. And let's all stand now and be sent out by the reading of God's Word. This is from Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You're dismissed.